Thank you for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. We're excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. We just want to make sure you're aware of a few things before we get to the sermon. First, we'd love to connect with you. You can follow us on our social networks at Hope Church LV, and also be sure to check out our website at hopechurchonline.com. There, you can find out more information about who we are and where we're going as a church. Once again, thank you so much for checking out this sermon at Hope Church. Please let us know if there's any way we can come alongside you and your family. Enjoy the message. I want to begin this morning with an honest confession. Here's my honest confession. Before last season... I had never watched an NHL hockey game in my life. It's as honest as I can be. I mean, I grew up in Alabama. In Alabama, hockey's not a thing, all right? I'm actually the guy that when I'm watching SportsCenter at night, before last season, I watched ESPN SportsCenter a lot at night, and I watch it, and when they bring the hockey guys on there, before last season, I'm the guy that said, why do they even do this? Nobody watches this sport. Nobody pays attention to this. I'd always wanted to be in a town where we had a pro sports team. I grew up in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, a town of 12,000 people. We didn't have a pro sports team. Closest thing we had was University of Alabama football, right? That's the closest thing we had to pro sports, and we didn't have that. So I didn't grow up around pro sports, and I always wanted to be in a town, and I thought, man, if we could have like a Major League Baseball team, that's kind of, I love going to Major League Baseball games. It's, it's like all the world slows down when I'm in a Major League Baseball park watching baseball, and I know everybody's wanting now to speed up the game. I, no, you take that game as long as you want it to go, man. I'll just watch all of it. Here we are. I'd never watch hockey in my life. And in Vegas, we get a pro sports team. And it's hockey. <laughs> and I'm thinking, you got to be kidding me. I finally live in a town. We get a pro sports team. And we get hockey. And then the story of the golden misfits, you know became a reality. We, we learned about all these has-been players and players that nobody wanted that all of a sudden became this team in Las Vegas, and they just began to win our heart. I mean, you, you couldn't. They were these underdogs that nobody gave a shot at being any good at all. And then before they, their skates ever touched the home ice here in Las Vegas, we had the October 1 tragedy. And we watched this group of misfits, this team, for the 10 days leading up to their first hockey game, they just wrapped their arms around this city. And I don't know about you, I've lived here 18 years. I've never been in our city when it felt more like a community than we did after that tragedy, watching in a lot of ways this hockey team begin to wrap its arms around this city. And, and so, I, I, like you, I, I didn't care at all about hockey, but I fell in love with them. And I just wanted to learn more about their story in the game. And then somebody invited me to a preseason game. Damon and Sonia invited me in our church to a preseason game. Went to my very first ever hockey game and didn't, know a, didn't have a clue what it was about, really. I just knew there was ice. That's all I knew. Damon's teaching me all the rules, and then I had other buddies, Tom and Mickey. Mickey's sitting right here. Mickey, take me 
the games and they'd, they'd help me understand the nuances of the game. And, and I got to be honest, man, I have fallen in love with hockey. I can't believe that for so much of my life, I didn't understand how awesome. This game is like, like take the best moments in a football game and put it together for three hours nonstop. And that's one of these hockey games. It is unbelievable. I went from have never watched hockey in my life to when they released the season tickets for 2018 season, the Review Journal had a picture on the front page of the article. Look at the picture. It's me. I'm on the front page of a hockey story in our newspaper. Somebody in our church, James over here, James sent me that picture. I'm like, what in the world? I, 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 this, this, this band of misfits that nobody thought would ever work. And they, they literally changed the hockey world. They, they, they impacted the sports world. But listen, in an infinitely greater way, 2,000 years ago, God brought together a group of people. <laughs> And you want to talk about misfits. They didn't go together at all. Like some were rich, some were poor. Some were educated, some were uneducated. Some were tax collectors stealing money. Some were salty fishermen with foul mouths. Others were prostitutes. They come from different cultures and backgrounds and colors and religions. Some of them were steeped in the tradition of Judaism and the religion of Judaism. Others of them had nothing to do with religion. They, they were so far removed from even believing there is a God. The only thing that they all had in common was they all met a man. And his name was Jesus. And Jesus changed them, and Jesus brought them together. And you want to talk about change? They didn't just change the sports world. These people have literally turned the world upside down. As we sit here this morning, there are about 2 billion people on planet Earth who profess to be followers of Jesus Christ, and every one of them has been impacted by this group of spiritual misfits. For several weeks, we've been in a series in the book of Ephesians. If you got your Bible, you can go ahead and open it to Ephesians chapter 4. And Paul is teaching us in this letter to one of the early churches about this idea of spiritual misfits. These people that didn't go together in any way other than Jesus brought them together. And now God's unexpected plan to change the world is through this group. We now call it the church. The church is this group of misfits. I mean, look, look at us today. We have all kind of stuff that would divide us. We have different convictions. We have different political ideologies. We have different economic educational backgrounds. We come from different cultures. Here's what unites us. We all met the same man. And his name is Jesus. And Jesus has changed us. And Jesus has brought us together as a family. And he's through us changing the world. And Paul's writing about this in this letter. And he begins to teach us some things about what this band of misfits, what the church is supposed to look like. He, he's taught us that we're to be a praying church. One of the ways that we, as these spiritual misfits, unite together is through prayer. He's taught us that we're to be a united church. 
We've been talking about it for the last couple of weeks. I'm going to finish up this section today. And then next weekend, I'm going to talk to you about how he, he's called us and he's made us a gifted church. That God's given each of us gifts to be lived out together inside of the context of this spiritual family. But if you got your Bible, Ephesians chapter 4, I want to reread some verses that I read last weekend. And we're going to dig into them a little bit further. Verse 1, here's what the Bible says. Paul says, therefore... I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent, here's the key phrase, to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Then he goes on to give us some of the foundation. There is one body and one Spirit Just as you were also called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Paul's writing about unity. And last weekend, I shared with you a couple of things that I want to remind you of today. First of all, that unity is experienced as we walk together in community. Paul challenged us based on three chapters of saying this is who you are in Christ to say now here's what that looks like as you walk together in community. As who we are in Christ begins to be lived out in our lives, that's one of the reasons that we have unity together is we live out in community the life of Christ in us being lived through us. And Paul gave us some characteristics. He talks about humility, gentleness, patience, enduring love. What are those? Those are all evidences of who we are in Christ being lived out together. And here's the thing we said about all those characteristics. None of them can be lived out in isolation. They can only be lived out in community. Meaning this, God did not bring you to himself to place you over here all by yourself in your personal love relationship with God. God brought you to himself so that you can live out your relationship with God in fellowship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And as we walk together in the fullness of the stature of Christ, We experience unity. Second thing we said last weekend is that unity is preserved as we work together in the Spirit. It's important to note, Paul says, be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. Meaning this, Paul is reminding us that the unity that we have as brothers and sisters in Christ is a spiritual unity. It's something that the Holy Spirit has done, meaning this. We are not given the challenge to create the unity because we can't do that. That's why politics, education, all the Listen, none of that's ever going to create unity. Only Jesus can bring us together in a spiritual. So Paul reminds us, we can't create this unity, but here's what he's telling us. Although we can't create it, we can sure kill it. You and I, by the way we live, by the way we act, by the way we react, we can do harm to the unity that exists inside the body of Christ. And so Paul says, we're to work together in the Spirit to preserve. And here's what Paul's really teaching us. Inside the body of Christ, you and I are either fighting for this unity or we are fighting against this unity. There's no neutrality. There's no middle ground. As we live out in fellowship with one another, we're either fighting for this unity or we are fighting against this unity. Listen, we have 
an enemy. And the enemy would love to destroy. I had no idea this weekend when I was preparing this talk. I didn't know they were going to be singing that song on the battle. But man, we have a battle and it's real. And I don't know about you, but we've been studying unity for about three weeks together. Man, over the last three weeks, I've experienced just personally some real spiritual battle in this thing of unity. And make no mistake, our enemy hates unity in the body of Christ. And he's going to do everything he can to destroy it because when he does, it destroys our witness to a watching world. So Paul says, man, we got to fight together for unity. Here's the third thing. This is where we're going to focus this weekend. Unity is founded on the truth we hold together in common. You see, this spiritual unity is not just a kumbaya moment, all right? This isn't let's light a candle and all get together and hold hands. No, this unity we have exists in the midst of our diversity. Some people would say, oh, well, we, to get unity, we just got to lay aside all the areas we differ in. We got to not major and just, just come together and kind of have this ooey-gooey, feely, touchy moment of unity. No, this is not, Paul's not talking about some kumbaya moment here. Paul is saying, hey, I understand you're diverse people. I understand there are different cultures and different backgrounds and different ethnicities. Paul says, I realize we've all come from different places, but we're all united because we know Jesus. And in Jesus, Jesus has given us some truth. This unity that we have is grounded in truth. It's born out of truth. And here's what he's saying. The truth that unites us is bigger than any issue that may divide us. So what Paul does is then he goes on a run of telling us what some of those truths are. Now, this is not an exhaustive list. But he gives us seven one statements. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. Seven one statements that are this barrage of theological truth that is what grounds us together in unity. So here's what I'm going to do for you today. We're going to unpack these seven truths. So I got seven points in my sermon today. Now I know some of you just got real nervous, right? Because you know normally I have two or three and we struggle to get out of here on time. I got seven today, all right? Now, you're cool. Let me tell you why. It's the 945 service. That means 1130 is coming. So I got to get you out to get them in. So you, you don't have anything to worry about. Now, 1130 service, those folks may be in trouble. <laughs> We may run right up to 630 uh, because I, I just don't know. that We literally could take each one of these things and preach a week. We could have done seven weekends on these seven one statements that Paul gives us. But I'm going to try to just hit kind of the 30,000 foot view with these truths and let us wrap our hearts around them and hear how they unite us as brothers and sisters in Christ. So if you're ready, say amen. If you're going to listen fast, say amen. All right, number one, we are members of one body. We are members of one body. Throughout the New Testament, 
And specifically here in the book of Ephesians, there are many different metaphors or uh, illustrations to communicate who we are as the church. For example, Paul's going to talk about us here in a couple of chapters in Ephesians that we are the bride of Christ as the church. When, he t- when the Bible uses that analogy of the bride of Christ as the church, he's emphasizing our intimate love relationship with Jesus. As his bride, we are all in an intimate love relationship with him. Another analogy that the Bible uses is the, is the analogy of a family. He just did that in chapter 2, that we are the family of God. When the Bible uses the family analogy, it's emphasizing not only our relationship with God as our Father, but it's emphasizing our relationships with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. We are one family. But here Paul uses the analogy of a body. The church being a body. Now, when we're the bride, it it, it demonstrates our relationship with Jesus. When we're a family, it's about our relationship with each other. But when he uses the analogy of the body, he's specifically talking about the way we relate to people outside of the church. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, here's what I mean. What is a body? What is a body? Think about it. In your mind, try to formulate a definition for what a body is. What's a body? Let me give you some help. We don't have time to give you long to think. Here, here, let me give you some help. Webster, here's some phrases Webster uses to define a body. A physical substance of a plant or animal. The material part of a human being. Something that gives concrete reality to a thing. You starting to hear it? You see, a body is the physical or material part. A body is that which gives concrete reality. You know it's real because it has a body. Let me illustrate it. How do you know Vance Pittman is real? How do you know I'm real? Because of what? I got a body, right? You can see me. You can touch me. You can meet me and interact with me. You can know that I'm real, even though you might have only heard about me. You can know me. You can meet me. You can know I'm real because I am a person. I have a body. How does the world know Jesus is real? If all they do is hear about him, If all they do is read about him, how does the world know Jesus is real? Let me tell you how. He has a body. Who's his body? We are. As the church, we are the body of Christ. Now, before you think I'm stretching this too far, listen to what John wrote in 1 John chapter 4. Listen to what he said. He said, no one has seen God at any time. But if, if we love one another, here's what he's saying. If we live out together who we are in Christ so that who we are in Christ becomes Christ in us and we begin to live out this one another relationship, which the epitome of that is that we love one another. He said, if we love one another, God, what? Abides in us. The word abide here, I really think that's not the best translation of that word. The word abide can mean to live, to dwell, to remain. I think it would be better translated here to say God lives 
in us. As we love one another, God lives. He dwells. He continues to exist on earth in us. And what happens? His love is perfected. It means made full. It means brought to completion. When the world sees us, (laughs) what other explanation they got? Because we don't fit together. We come from different backgrounds and cultures and convictions and countries. We have different economic and educational backgrounds, different political ideology. When the world looks at this, what is this? I'll tell you who it is. It's Jesus. It's Jesus in us that has brought us together as the body of Christ. So so with each of these seven things, I'm going to give you a truth and I'm going to give you an application. Here's the truth on this one. As the church... We are the visible and tangible expression of Jesus Christ in the world. That's the truth of one body. And here's why this is about unity. You know what this truth does? This truth is bigger than anything that divides us. You know what? The stuff that we want to disagree about, the stuff that we want to argue about, the stuff that we want to allow to divide us, it doesn't come close to the priority of making sure that Las Vegas, the West, and the world knows that Jesus is real. So it unites us together. Well, then what's, what does this mean for us? Well, if, if this is true, the church is a body. Now, next weekend we're going to talk about this principle. A body has many parts. And all the parts need to function in order for the body to be healthy, right? My role of teaching and preaching, all that is is a spiritual gift. That's it. And it's one of many gifts given to the body of Christ. Not the most important gift. It happens to be the most visible gift. But it's not the most important gift. Here's what the scripture teaches. And we're going to talk about this next weekend. Every one of you that are part of Hope Church, all of you have a gift. A supernatural grace gift been given to you by the Holy Spirit of God. And it must function in order for us to be a healthy body. And if all of us are not functioning together, using the gifts God's given us and the power of the Holy Spirit, we'll never demonstrate the love of Jesus to this city. Ever. So, So here's the application. We need you to function as a healthy part of this body. We need you to function. We need you to be involved. Here's what happens in a church, specifically as a church gets larger. People like to sit and soak. God didn't make you to sit and soak. Yes, we can sit. Yes, we can soak. But out of that, we need to serve Using our gifts. If all we do is sit and soak, this doesn't happen in Las Vegas because we got such a dry climate, but where I'm from in Alabama, if you leave a wet towel on the floor and it sits and it soaks, you know what it's going to do? It's going to sour, right? Here's what's happened to a lot of people in the church. They sit and they soak and they become spiritually sour. Because God didn't call us to sit and soak. He called us to serve. Why is this important? Because as we unite together using our gifts to serve one another and love one another, then the world knows Jesus is real. The world knows Jesus is real. So if you got number one, say amen. All right. So I get the framework on the table so you understand how we're going to do this. I'm going to move a little quicker through some of these. Um, And if you want to hear more details, stick around for the 1130 service. Number two. 
don't text them and tell them. Don't give them a heads up. They're not going to come if you do. Don't you tell them. Number two, we are indwelled by one spirit. We're indwelled by one spirit. Paul says one body, one spirit. What's, what's the truth here? Here it is. At the moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside every believer. The minute you came to know Jesus Christ, the moment you put your faith and trust in Jesus, the Spirit of God, meaning this all that God is in his Spirit came to live inside of you. Let me show it to you in the Bible. Romans chapter 8 verse 9. Look what it says. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. He's writing to Christians. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Here's what that means. When you came to know Jesus, you got the Spirit of God living inside of you. And if you don't have the Spirit of God living inside of you, here's what the Bible says. You don't know Jesus. Period. No ambiguity here. Every Christian is indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. So here's the application. We need you to walk moment by moment yielded to the control of the Holy Spirit. How does this play into unity? Here's how. Listen. As you read the book of Acts and throughout the New Testament, you'll hear this phrase repeated in Scripture. They were all in one accord. And that does not mean they were driving around Jerusalem in a Honda, all right? That's not what he's talking about. When he says they were all in one accord, the scripture is talking about them spiritually all being on the same page. You say, well, that must have been a small church. (laughs) No. In the book of Acts, by week two, there were over 20,000 people attending the church. And yet the scripture says they were all in one. How in the world do you get a crowd of people like this multiply four times over a Sunday? How do we all get on the same page spiritually? Here's how. We got the same spirit living inside of us. And if every one of us moment by moment will yield to the control of the Holy Spirit, guess what happens? We all get on the same page spiritually. Paul writes about it in the book of Galatians, and he talks about it. He calls it walking in the Spirit, and he says when we do that, what comes out of us is the fruit of the Spirit. Let me read you what it looks like when we allow the fruit of the Spirit to live through us. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. What is that? Here's what this is. This is a nine-dimensional configuration of the life of Jesus Christ. This is who Jesus is. Notice, this doesn't say the fruits. It says fruit. A lot of us look at this like, well, I'm doing good at this one. I'm doing good at this one. I'm not so good in these other ones, but but I'm doing good at two or three of these. Like it's a, a grocery line. We can go through and pick certain fruit that we... No, the fruit, meaning the, the evidence that Jesus in us is being lived through us as we walk by the Spirit is, guess what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And we should be continuously growing in those things as we walk yielded to the Spirit. And when we do that, it unites us. Now, Paul's going to tell us in Ephesians, when we're not doing this, here's what happens. It quenches and it grieves the work of the Holy Spirit in us as a body. We're all indwelt by one spirit. If you got that, say amen. Amen. Number three, we are living with one hope. One hope. The word hope, as it's used here in Scripture, 
is not the same word that we would often use to describe hope. Often when we use the word hope, we're thinking about wishful thinking. Like, I hope I'm going to win the lottery, right? It's wishful thinking. But the word hope in Scripture is not wishful thinking. The word hope in Scripture is confident expectation. Based on what I know to be true, I look forward with a confident expectation of obtaining that which is mine. Paul says, as Christians, we've all got one hope that we've wrapped our hearts around. Well, what is the truth? Let me show it to you. A day is coming when Jesus will return for his church and we will spend eternity with him. If you got that hope, say amen. Amen. That was not near good enough. If you got that hope, say amen. Amen. Listen, here's what the Bible says. Could be today, could be tomorrow, could be next week, could be 10 years from now, could be 100 years from now. But the Bible says one day we're going to be just doing our thing and the Lord himself is going to descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God in 1 Thessalonians. Then the dead in Christ are going to be raised first. Then we who are alive and remain are going to be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Thus we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, Paul says, comfort one another with these words. We have a great hope that Jesus is coming again. This world is not all there is. The elections that are coming up are not all there is. Your sports team winning this weekend is not all there is. The ups and downs of your retirement portfolio is not all there is. One day, King Jesus is coming again. One day, he's going to establish his rule and his reign forever and forever. And every one of us who are children of God, we live with that hope. Now, you might say, well, let me hang on now. Uh... This thing of Jesus' return, you're talking about unity now. This is one of the things where we got a lot of division. I mean, we got pre-mill and post-mill. We got pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. We got a literal millennial reign and a figurative millennial. We got all kinds of, we got all the books and movies. We got charts and graphs. We've got all kinds. Listen, that's true. That's true. That's true. In the framework, there's a lot of the details we differ on. But here's what I can tell you we all agree on. One day, Jesus is coming again. You and I may be wrong on some pieces and parts of how we think it's going to happen. But at the end of the day, he is coming again. And it is that hope that unites us. So here's here's the application. We need you to live every day in light of that day. You see, when all of us together start living our lives like eternity matters more than time, think about it. Our resources, our time, our talents, our treasures, our money, our gifts, our abilities. When we unite around one hope, we all start leveraging all of that for the sake of this day. Because you know what? When this day happens, it's not going to matter how my retirement fund's doing. Because I got another retirement fund. And it's eternal and it's secure. Now, that doesn't mean we don't plan. That doesn't mean we don't have processes in place. We do. But we hold it loosely knowing that this is the day I'm living for. This affects the way we deal with relationships. Right? When I live in light of eternity, everybody I know 
my neighbors, my coworkers, the people I see at the grocery store, the people at the gym, everybody I know is one of two things. They're either lost or they're saved. And we spend too much time trying to convince people to get in categories that aren't those categories. Oh, we'll argue at the gym about everything else. We'll argue at the grocery store about everything else. Oh, I can't talk about Jesus. I'm afraid I'm going to offend somebody. No, when you live in light of eternity, the conversation about Jesus is only one that matters. The rest of it's temporary and irrelevant. Because they're going to, when he comes again, it don't matter whether they're Democrat, Republican, or Independent. It doesn't matter whether they're your fan or another team's fan. When they come again, all that matters, when he comes again, do, do they know Jesus? Are they lost or are they saved? And this unites us together. Number four. I'm I'm just going to give you the truth on this one, all right? We are surrendered to one Lord. What is the truth that unites us? Here it is. Jesus and Jesus alone is in charge. That's it. I'm not in charge. You're not in charge. Washington, D.C. is not in charge. The Middle East is not in charge. Jesus and Jesus alone is in charge. Which means, here's the application, we need you to submit to Jesus as Lord in every area of your life. It's one thing to say amen to Jesus and Jesus alone is in charge. It's something else to allow every, every detail of your life to be submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. But here's what happens. When we all submit ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in every area, you know what it does? It brings us together. We start walking in his will. Number five, we are living according to one faith. He says, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith. And when Paul uses the word faith here, he's using it just like Jude did in the, in the book of Jude towards the end of the New Testament when he said, I'm writing to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. So, so here's the truth that unites us. We have one authority for what we believe and how we are to live. And it is the what? I'm say it again. It's the what? Word of God. We have one authority. Listen, I'm not the authority. You're not the authority. Nobody else is the authority. The church is not the authority. We have one authority for what we believe and how we are to live. And that authority is the Word of God. You say, wait a minute. Can't we have some differences of opinion concerning things that are in the Bible? Yes, we can. But here's here's what's not up for debate. What's not up for debate is this is God's Word. And this is the ultimate authority for what we believe. This is the ultimate authority for how we are to live. So when we have brokenness in our relationships with each other, how do we fix that? We come together and say, what does the book say? What does God's Word say about how we're to fix this? When we have a situation that we're dealing with how do we figure out how to handle this situation we come to the book and we say what does the book say what has God said about how we're to handle that and we submit ourselves to the authority of scripture there's a a a thing going around in culture today where you'll hear people say this well you just pursue your truth I got my truth you pursue your truth 
Let me speak to that. There is no your truth and my truth. There's the truth. And the truth is contained in the word of God. This is the truth for us. At Hope, we, we, we look at God's word like this. We talk about truth like they're rings of truth. We have non-negotiable truth. What's that? Jesus is God. Jesus is God who became a man. Jesus is God who died on a cross for our sins. Jesus is God who rose again from the dead. Jesus is God sitting at the right hand of the Father. There's a real heaven. There's a real hell. God is real. God is one God in three distinct persons. God the Father. God the Son. God, there's some stuff in the Bible not up for debate, man. It's black and white in scripture it is non-negotiable truth but then there's another ring what we call it hope negotiable truth it's true but we can we can have some back and forth about it for example we talked about the second coming of Jesus right we all believe he's coming but we can debate around some of the specifics we all believe that we're all gifted spiritually but we can debate about how it happened there, there's there's truth that's not up for debate non-negotiable but then there's truth that we can kind of have some debate about then there's a ring ring that we call convictions these are our personal convictions that we have based on the truth for example you may have a conviction about what movies you should or should not go see but here's what I can promise you there's no verse in the scripture that says thou shalt not see this movie you know what you've done you've developed a conviction personally based on what you believe the truth to teach So there's non-negotiable truth where we unite together, but then we have liberty with our brothers and sisters in Christ in some of these other areas. The the, the fourth ring is what we call preferences. This ain't got nothing to do with the truth, right? This is just, I prefer loud music. I prefer soft music. I prefer early morning service. I prefer a service late at night. Nothing spiritual about that, right? It's just a preference. As brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to know that we are submitted to one authority. That is the word of God, and we need to demonstrate charity and liberty towards our brothers and sisters in Christ in other areas where we can have some debate. If that makes sense, say amen. So here's the application. We need you to pursue time in, under, and around the word alone and with others. We need you to pursue time in, under, and around the word alone with others. Listen, if you are not giving priority to this book, In your life, you care nothing about the unity of this fellowship. Because this book's what unites us together. It's the one faith delivered to the saints once and for all. So I need to do this in my personal life, in my daily rhythm. I need to have moments where I submit myself to the word of God. But I also need to do this in small groups with other believers where we fellowship together. Why do we do that? Because that's the program in the church? No, because we're fighting for unity as the body of Christ. Number six, Paul says one baptism. We've all experienced one baptism. Here's the truth. Jesus has given us one clear way to show the world that we are his followers and we are his family. And that is to be baptized. Paul here is not talking about spiritual baptism because he's already talked about the spirit. He's talking about water baptism, that step of obedience. And Paul's saying that every one of us have come through that same door to identify with Jesus and with his family as the church. So here's the application. We need you to go public and get baptized. (laughs) If you hadn't done that yet, listen, baptism is a big deal. Paul says it's one of the seven things that he mentions that unite us together as the family of God. If you've never followed Christ publicly in baptism, that needs to happen in your life. 
Then here's the seventh and final. We're done with this. We all have one Father. Paul says, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. What's the truth? Here's the truth. There is one true and living God, and he is redeeming a family to himself from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. It's what Paul's been saying for three chapters. This mystery. We got one God and one Father, and he's redeeming a people to himself from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. So here's the application. We need you to join in God's mission. You see, mission brings alignment. Mission brings unity. The ultimate end is not about us. It's about the people that have yet to hear in Las Vegas. It's about the people in the Western United States that have never heard the good news. It's about people in the world who've never been exposed to the truth about Jesus. And when we come together around mission, you know what happens? We unite. We let the little stuff, we can let that go. Why? Because there's something bigger. There's something bigger. That's why Paul says he's over all. It means he's sovereignly in control. God is accomplishing his mission. He's through all, meaning that he's personally at work in your life where you live, work, and play using your job, skill, and passion. And he's in all. He's present, empowering you to share in his mission. And Paul says, as we come together around these seven things, man, we need to do everything we can to fight for unity. We got an enemy. He'd love to destroy the unity. Why? Because we represent Jesus to the world. If he can destroy the body, they won't know he's real. So we got to fight for unity. Let's pray together. Father, teach us from your word today. Lord, I know in some ways today's message is kind of like skipping a rock across the top of a lake. It just bounced across at several points where we jumped into several areas today and God I pray that your Holy Spirit would work in individual lives in areas Lord where you know they, they, they need to hear from you as you sit before the Lord we're going to have a time to respond in a moment, our worship team is going to lead us in a song, and we're going to have a moment of worship. It's not a time to slip out early. It's a time to respond to what we've heard from God. Maybe you're here today, and God's spoken to you in one of these areas of unity, and you just want to come and get on your knees and just cry out to God on behalf of our fellowship or churches across the Las Vegas Valley for just unity, oneness. churches in the Las Vegas Valley are not our competition. They're our co-laborers. We're together in this fight. Maybe you have something on your heart, a burden in your job, your health, your family. We have pastors here at the front. We'd be honored for you to come. We'd love to pray with you and for you while we're singing this song. The altars are going to be open. You can come get in one of these altars. Just carry your burden to the Lord. Finally, this morning, maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. You don't know what it means to be forgiven by God and to have a relationship with God. 
for God to be your father and for the church to be your family. Maybe you feel separated from God and alone in the world. Listen, God loves you, and the whole story of the Bible is that he loves you so much that he gave his son Jesus to come into the world and to take the sin that that you've committed and I've committed, the bad decisions, the bad choices, the wrong moves. Jesus took all that on himself on the cross when he died. He paid the penalty for your sin and mine. He died for us. And listen, he did that because God loves you. And he wants to forgive you and bring you to himself. Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose again as a testimony that God had accepted his sacrifice for our sin. So now you and I can put our faith in Jesus. We can believe in him. And we get to be forgiven by God. And we get to be brought into God's family. If you don't know Jesus today, when we stand to sing in just a moment, our pastors are here at the front. You can come to any one of them and just say, I need Jesus. And we'll have somebody sit down with you and show you how you can begin a relationship with God. You can be forgiven today. All you got to do is come. So these altars are going to be open. Our pastors are here. All you got to do is come. Father, right now, would you give liberty? God, I pray for people that need to respond to an altar or to be prayed for or God people that need to know Jesus today I pray that when we stand and sing and some are coming to pray God that they would come they'd give their life to Jesus Lord would you move in power it's in the name of Jesus we pray